And you can open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. And by God's grace, we will fly over it successfully in the next hour as I attempt to do it justice but not get bogged down in any one particular part. The book of Isaiah has been referred to by many over the centuries as the fifth gospel. And there is good reason for that because the gospel message is woven all the way through this incredible book that we have in the Old Testament. I want to read to you a quote from N.T. Wright. It says, Some of the early fathers regarded Isaiah as the great prophet. Some even saw the book as a fifth gospel. It is easy to see why. When you think of scriptural passages which point to the coming king, Isaiah's chapter 9 and 11 come to mind. And when you think of a royal figure who will suffer to bring about God's long-planned redemption, the servant songs in Isaiah 40 through 55, climaxing in chapter 53, are the obvious place to go. And when you reflect that the New Testament celebrates the strange victory of God through His anointed one over all the dark forces in the world, and with the arm of bringing about the new heavens and the new earth, the, then Isaiah 56 or 66 are the natural place to look, end quote. And so the book of Isaiah has been seen for a long time within church history by a great many people as this amazing message about Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what it is. And before we go surfing over the, the top of it this evening, I wanted to give a little bit of background before we get into the book itself. And so I want to start with the era in which it was written, the time in which Isaiah wrote Isaiah. It was in the late 8th century B.C., so about 740 to 680 uh, B.C. It was during the Assyrian crisis. If you know much about the history of Israel in the Old Testament, um, they had a, a series of disciplines by the Lord after their fall from glory after Solomon. Solomon was the peak of glory for uh, Israel, and then very quickly they, they took a nosedive, and then they had a civil war and split into two factions. There was the, the north and the south. There was Israel and Judah. And in 722, Assyria came and uh, uh, took out northern um, Israel, and then uh, later in uh, 586 B.C., uh, Babylon came and uh, disciplined Judah and took them into captivity. And so he is writing uh, during the Assyrian crisis, uh, during the time that northern Israel was disciplined by Assyria. Uh, Isaiah um, lives and proclaims his message in Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah at the time. Um, and he does this during the reigns of uh, uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These are four of the kings of Judah that reigned during his time from 792 to uh, 687 B.C. You see that directly in verse 1 of chapter 1. So it tells you right there at the beginning, this is the time that this took place, that he is writing about these things. So like I mentioned before, in 722 B.C., Assyria destroyed the northern Israel. And then in uh, 701 B.C., uh, they attacked Jerusalem, so they were a threat. Okay? And so this was a real crisis for the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and so the first half of the book, uh, chapters 1 through 39, are written in the context of this a geopolitical setting of this Assyrian crisis and, and the threat uh, to the north of Assyria. The second half of the book is uh, chapters 40 through 66, appears uh, to be directed to those that are in the Babylonian exile. So this would be after 586 B.C. 
Um, and under the Persian dominance after 539 BC, if you know the history, uh, Babylon got disciplined by God after God allowed them to discipline Judah, and they got disciplined by Persia. And so Persia came in and took over Babylon. And so it is written during that time period, the second half of the book. Uh, the authorship of the book of Isaiah, I will tell you up front so I don't give you any anxiety, it was written by Isaiah. But not everybody agrees about that, and I think it's important for you to know that, and so I want to mention a couple of things. Uh, Non-evangelical Old Testament scholarship uh, separates authorship into three major sections of the book, which are the three major sections of the book. So uh, chapters 1 through 39, they say Isaiah wrote that. Everyone agrees that Isaiah wrote chapters 1 through 39. Uh, but then they say that some mysterious other prophet that they have no idea who he is uh, wrote um, chapters 40 through 55 um, during the Babylonian exile, and that another mysterious prophet that they have no idea who he is wrote uh, chapters 56 through 66 um, during the post-exilic uh, period, which would be um, after the exile when they were coming back to the promised land or back to, to Israel and Jerusalem, okay? So that's what they say. There's very little evidence, it, well, not very much at all, to back up their theory. And the problem with all of the uh, scholars that study the Old Testament that don't belong to Jesus is that their presuppositions eliminate all of the evidence that is right there in front of their face, Right? So if you believe that there's no God and you believe that there's no way that he gave divine revelation and, and there, you don't believe in the miraculous, then all of the evidence that's in front of you that speaks of that, you just go, well, that can't be, <laughs> you know, and you toss it aside. However, uh, most evangelical Old Testament scholars say that Isaiah wrote the entire book, um, uh, but uh, it is noteworthy that not all of them are in, are in agreement, but most of them are. And it's really leaning towards, even in non-evangelical um, scholarship today, a lot of them are agreeing, oh, you know what, it does look like one guy wrote this whole thing. Um, so it's really leaning that way. The, the view of the three different authors is fading, um, even in uh, non-evangelical scholarship. Uh, the most important thing to note is that both Jesus and the apostles said he wrote the whole thing, <laughs> okay? So that's really noteworthy, uh, is that he is quoted, Isaiah is quoted the New Testament, New Testament numerous times, and in several places with, it said, as the prophet Isaiah said, quote, um, so Jesus does this, the apostles do this, um, and so it's very important to see that. It is also the most quoted prophet in the New Testament 411 times and uh, 21 by name. So it is all through the New Testament, uh, which is uh, a good reason why people tend to view it as the, as the fifth gospel. So that's a little bit about uh, the time that it was written uh, the author, and a little bit about the man himself, Isaiah. Uh, he is referred to as the prince of the prophets. His name means Yahweh is salvation, which is fitting for his message, because that's exactly the message that he has throughout the entire book of Isaiah, is that God's going to save you. <laughs> and uh, that is, we're going to see, woven all through it from beginning to end. Uh, he was well-connected. He may have been the cousin of King uh, Uzziah, so that's uh, kind of noteworthy. He was evidently a well-known person and kind of in the, the elite class there um, in Judah. Uh, he was also married, we know, from the text. Uh, his wife is referred to as the prophetess in chapter 8, verse 3. He had two sons, both of his sons' names, which I'm not going to try to pronounce, um, were uh, re resembled truths about what God was going to do through the nation of Israel. Um, this is, he's not the only prophet to do this, by the way. There's uh, other prophets like uh, Hosea that also names his children after um, uh, things that God is trying to speak to the nation of Israel. So uh, one of his son's names means uh, 
a remnant shall return, meaning there is going to be a faithful remnant of, of Israel that will return to faith. Um, and also, uh, another one was spoken of as the uh, punishment that would come upon Israel for their unbelief and their idolatry. Um, and his name means the spoils, uh, seeds, and the prey quicken. So it was kind of this doom and gloom type name. Um, also, uh, he was dramatically called, and we will see that when we go through it, not tonight, but when we actually cover it in chapter 6. It was a, it's an amazing experience that he has where it's very similar to the experience that John has in the Revelation where he's taken before the presence of God in, in, uh, in the metaphysical realm and he sees the glory of God. So it's an, an incredible experience in his calling. Um, and then he was also mostly ignored, which is uh, uh, just encouraging to realize <laughs> because I don't know about you, but sometimes you feel ignored um, in the world at large as you try to share the hope of of Jesus with people and the truth of the gospel, and, and you're in good company uh, because people like Isaiah uh, from the past were also ignored. Uh, he may have also been martyred by Manasseh, uh, but we're unsure of that. It's speculated. There's some, uh, some old ancient texts that refer to that possibility, but it's unsure, okay? So we don't really know what his exact fate was. So let's start going through the book of Isaiah. We're going to open, of course, to chapter 1. And in this first section, in, like I mentioned, there's three major sections to the book. Um, and this first one is chapters 1 through 39. And it is about the judgment for sin, but there are glimpses of grace along the way. So there is this real... Um, verdict of guilty that Isaiah gives to the nation of Israel, and we're going to talk about that here in a second, but there's also these amazing glimpses of grace throughout it, which is totally incredible, and it is referring to the coming king, those glimpses of grace, and so we're going to see that here shortly. In uh, 1 through 12, chapters 1 through 12, we see the judgment of Judah based on Yahweh's righteousness and justice. This is a theme that is throughout the book of Isaiah, and that is that Yahweh judges based on his righteousness, okay? And so there's this theme of righteousness and justice throughout the book of Isaiah, and not only is it an aspect of his judgment, but it's also an aspect of his salvation that, that the coming Savior of the world will rule in righteousness and justice, and we will see that as we look at several passages along the way. Uh, Yahweh is a God of justice and righteousness, like I mentioned. And then we see in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, um, this is the covenant lawsuit against Israel and Judah. So look with me in verses 2 through 4. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give hear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offsprings of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And so this is how he opens the, the book of Isaiah. And uh, many people refer to the prophets as uh, covenant lawyers, that they're, they're coming before the nation of Israel and, and declaring them guilty before God for breaking his law. And Isaiah is doing this very much in the same way. Uh, they have broken the covenant, and the covenant is referring to the Mosaic covenant, which is spelled out in Deuteronomy and within the, the Pentateuch itself. And so this is the, the covenant that Isaiah is referring to. And so the message is this. You've broken God's covenant and you better repent. That's the first part of the message, okay? You've, you've broken God's covenant and you better repent. And then the second part of the message is that uh, if there is no repentance, then there's going to be judgment for both you and the nations. 
And you see that everything that is spoken of uh, in the book of Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament is in both in terms of judgment and in, ter in terms of hope is not just for the nation of Israel. It is also for the nations at large, the whole world, okay? And that was, that's always been the message, by the way. That's not a New Testament thing. That is very much a God thing. He's always been about everybody, okay? And he's used the nation of Israel to reveal himself to everybody, okay? And so this is the second part of the message through the book of Isaiah is that there, if there is no repentance, there's going to be judgment for both you and the nations. But then the third part of the message is that yet there is hope beyond the judgment for a glorious future restoration, both for Judah and Israel and for the nations. Okay, So even though judgment is coming, even though discipline is going to happen, there is still hope beyond that. And that is the gospel message. That even though we suffer right now for the sins, I mean, there is suffering in the world right now for our sins. Your sins, my sins, everybody's sins. There is suffering, and there's an element of God's judgment right now, but there is hope beyond that in our Savior Jesus Christ, and that is the message of Isaiah. I want to mention three ways in which they had broken the, the Mosaic law, okay? The first is idolatry. They were worshiping other gods, um, and we <clears throat> can commit this as well in our own life. You don't have to worship a, a Baal idol in order to commit idolatry. All you have to do is worship something other than God. And uh, there's many things that we struggle with in life that we devote ourselves to instead of devoting ourselves to God and giving Him the due respect that He deserves. And so they were guilty of idolatry. Uh, the second thing they were guilty of was social injustice. God actually cares about how we treat other people. Okay? <laughs> he, he does. We see that uh, in both the Old and New Testament, that there were many things in the Old Testament that spoke about how they were supposed to care for other people. And in the New Testament, Jesus simplifies it. Love God, love other people, right? Do that, he says, and you'll complete the entire law, okay? So we are held accountable for how we treat one another. So social injustice, like not caring for the poor, not caring for widows and orphans, not caring for sojourners. Um, and so they weren't doing these things. They weren't treating people the way that God had told them to treat them, and they were guilty of that. Also, religious uh, ritualism or superstition. Uh, they were simply thinking that they were fine as long as they went through the motions of religion, right? As long as I, I go to the temple, as long as I make my sacrifices and I pray and I, I tithe and I do all these things, well, I'm fine, right? I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm holy and righteous because I do these things. And it's very clear through the message of both Isaiah and, and lots of the other prophets that that's not okay. God is not interested in you going through the motions. He's interested in a relationship with you. He actually wants your heart and that this religious superstition or ceremonialism is not okay. This is not going to put you in right standing with God. So these were the things that they were guilty of. And then in uh, chapters 9 and 11, and this is really at the heart of the gospel within this first section of the book of Isaiah, we see glimpses of hope in the future Messiah. And so turn with me to chapter 9, where we're going to look at a couple verses. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with these passages. They get uh, referred to quite often. And in, and in chapter 9, verses 6 or 7, it says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so here we see this amazing picture of what we know to be now Jesus, right? They didn't know that. They just knew it was a promise of, of a future person who would come, a child that would be born, who would bring this amazing hope for Israel. But we now see this and, and know it to be Jesus. It is part of the Davidic uh, covenant fulfillment that was given to David where 
where God promised him that he would have someone that came after him, one of his offspring would sit on his throne and would reign forever. And this is the promise of that person is this amazing king who will come. And, and then it goes on, you know, again, like I said, it says justice and righteousness defines his kingdom, right? And this is a theme that we see throughout Isaiah is this uh, justice and righteousness that comes forth from the reigning ruler that is promised in the future. This child promise in, in this chapter um, is, uh, well, the, the child promise back in chapter 7, we don't have time to look at it, um, it has a near-far view, and uh, if you haven't heard about this before, I just want to mention it because sometimes it can be confusing, but there's many prophecies in the Bible that have a near-far view where there is a near fulfillment, a lesser uh, fulfillment that happens, um, but it was speaking of a greater fulfillment in the future. Uh, and one of those prophecies is the prophecy of this child because there was a child that was born during the time of Isaiah, and it was as for a sign to Ahaz, the king, um, that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Um, and so uh, he was, this child was born. But it was also speaking of this future child that would be born. And we know that to be Jesus. Some of the, the other prophecies in the Bible, for instance, that do this, um, one that, that comes to mind uh, for me instantly is in the Revelation where Clearly, there are aspects of the revelation that, that you can totally connect to Rome and, and the fall of Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem um, in 70 AD. Uh, you can see that. But then there's obviously parts of it that you're like, well, that's not exactly what happened in 70 AD, right? And so there's a lesser fulfillment and yet a greater fulfillment in the future that we have yet to see. This happens all through the Bible within prophecy. So... Not a weird deal, totally something that God does all the time. Um, and so that's just good to be aware of. We then see the reference to the righteous branch, which is, again, another glimpse of the future Messiah, King. That's in chapter 11. So turn with me there to chapter 11. And it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. If you don't know, Jesse is the father of David. And so this is, again, uh, a prophecy of the fulfillment of the promise that was made to King David that he would have someone who would come from him. Um, and so there's this amazing picture here. It goes on. And the Spirit of the Lord shall raise upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall, not, he shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. See that theme again, right? All about this righteousness and justice. And decide with um, equity for the meek in, on the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So this is a picture of this promised ruler that's going to come from the stump of Jesse and, and be raised up. Uh, we see that um, also that he will bring about unparalleled peace and prosperity. It continues in verses 6 through 8. And his coming kingdom of peace is also going to be not just for Israel again, but for the nations also. We see that in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be Glorious, And so, see, the nations are referred to there, um, which is the word for all the people of the world, okay? That they will look upon him and that they will come to him, okay? And then we get now into, uh, let me make sure, oh, missed my place. There I am. So in, in verses, I'm going to kind of just 
briefly skim over a few things just so you have an idea of what goes on between these major sections that I want to look at. But you've got uh, judgment on the nations that's spoken of in chapters 13 through 23. Uh, Yahweh's people should trust in Yahweh. That's a kind of a theme that is uh, communicated through those chapters. Uh, we do not need to fear world powers. Uh, that's an important thing to remember, Christian friend, that you don't need to fear world powers. Again, remember the context that he's writing into, that he's got the Assyrians to the north. Babylon's going to come. There are these huge world powers, and they, they felt very powerless against them, and they were trying to they were more worried about building human alliances than trusting God. And so the message is you don't need to fear world powers. The big question, and this is an important one that he is laying out to them, is in whom will you trust? Are you going to trust in Yahweh or in political alliances? That's a big question that he's posing to the nation of Israel in this section. And then those who do evil to God's people, he will punish. That's the little promise that he gives them. In chapters 24 through 27, we see judgment on the world and creation. Humanity, uh, humanity's sin has brought judgment on all creation. Okay, so the, not just on human beings, but on the creation itself. Uh, the Apostle Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 8. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so he says that in chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. And it's the same thing that Isaiah speaks of uh, in this section that the creation itself is under judgment thanks to us, <laughs> you know, and um, that Jesus is not only the answer for the deliverance of humanity, but he's, an he's the answer for the deliverance of the cosmos, that he is going to restore the entire universe. The judgment um, uh, is followed by deliverance in chapters 28 through 39. Uh, the Lord is sovereign over human history. This is a major theme uh, throughout the book of Isaiah, that he is sovereign over human history. He is actually in charge of it all, that all of the things that cause us to like lose our mind and be really worried about, that God actually knows what he's doing and he's in charge of all of it, and we should trust him. Okay? So this is a major theme that gets fleshed out there. We have another glimpse of the future justice and righteousness of the coming king. Uh, chapter 32, if you want to flip there. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hidden place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. And so you see him speak about the life and the safety that is provided by the coming king and the hope that is in the Messiah and in, the, in terms of like water when, in a dry land or, or shade in a really hot and desolate place, like he is going to bring what we need in our desperate times, okay? So there's this hope that is given. And then we get into the second major half of the book, which is broken up into two sections. And it's, uh, so chapters 40 through 66, uh, prophecies of comfort and anticipation of redemption. There's lots of good stuff in the second half of this book. There's lots of good stuff throughout it, but there's some really cool things. And in the first part of chapters 40 through 55, which is the second, in the second major section, there's two major sections. So this is the first of the second within the second section, if that makes any sense. Okay? So... Encouragement for God's exiles. And we see that in the servant. Now, if you were with us on Sundays in the month of August, you got a glimpse of that, a really good glimpse of it, because we covered the four servant songs uh, during the month of August. And we will re-hit those again in this study when we get to them in those chapters. But such an amazing glimpse of hope 
in the servant that is promised in Isaiah. He says in chapter 40, um, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. This is a message message that comes out before he introduces the servant to them uh, in the coming chapters. And so there's this big idea of don't fear, don't be afraid. I am with you in the midst of all these things that you're worried about. This is a shift to look forward to the glorious restoration. He's going to give them hope that they're not going to see right away. This is future hope. This is something to look forward to. And by the way, it's the same for you and me, okay? We belong to Jesus, and we, we don't belong to this world. We belong to the age to come. We are not citizens of this age. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven in Jesus Christ, and therefore we have a hope that is future, that God has prophesied about, he's told us about, and we put our trust in that hope, right? And he's doing the same thing here in the, in the servant songs, telling them about this future hope that is to come. There is... Uh, in chapter 40, verse 3, he says, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert highway for our God. And anybody know where that's mentioned? <laughs> yeah, it's mentioned in the New Testament in reference to John the Baptist, right? He was the one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord, okay? And so that's mentioned in numerous places. One is in John chapter 1, verse 23. And so that's noteworthy right there. Obviously, then, this is pointing to Jesus, right? Uh, Yahweh's people should not despair, but rather soar on the wings of eagles, we see in, in verses 27 through 31 of chapter 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But he who waits for the Lord shall renew his strength. They shall mount on the wings of eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. This is an amazing message of hope for those who are weary and are in danger of despair. He says, don't despair. I've got you. And then comes this amazing message, this four-part thing of the servant songs in chapters 42, 49, 50, and 52, and 53. And so we're going to briefly look at those. Briefly. In chapter 42, we see the chosen servant of Yahweh. He will have the spirit of Yahweh and will establish justice and righteousness on the earth. You see that theme once again in this promise of the coming servant of justice and righteousness. The servant will be a mediator mediator of a new covenant as well as the one who delivers the nations from darkness. Look at verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And so this amazing message, both for Israel and the nation, that this chosen servant of Yahweh is going to be the mediator of this new covenant and to also deliver the nations from darkness. Light to the nations is another theme in the book of Isaiah. You see it all throughout, that there's this amazing message of hope, not just for Israel, but for the nations also. And it's spoken of in terms of light for the nations over and over again. The servant in uh, chapter 49, you can turn there, chapter 49. 
we see the servant's calling and mission in this servant's song. He calls him to speak truth and life with precision. We see that in the beginning part of the song in verses 1 through 4, that he is going to speak truth and he is going to speak life and he's going to do it in a way that pierces right to the heart. Like, sounds a little bit like, you know, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces to the division of bone and marrow, right? You know, gets to the heart of the matter, right? So that's what the word of the servant is going to do. It's going to be this amazing weapon uh, to pierce through to people with truth and life. His mission is to bring Israel back and to give light to the nations. We see this in verses 5 and 6. It says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength, he says. To, it is to light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribe of Jacob, Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations. See, there it is again that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And so, again, you see this thing, this, this hope in the promised servant is not just for Israel, it's for the nations as well. And as a fellow Gentile, I'm very grateful for that. And then we see in the third one, uh, the obedient servant, chapter 50, verses 4 through 11. His obedience and faithfulness gives hope to the weary, verses 4 through 6. He is vindicated by God the Father, verses 7 through 9. And he calls us to walk by his light and not our own in verses 10 through 11. So again, you see this theme of, of light that comes from the servant. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord. And rely on his God. Behold, you who kindle a fire, you equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torch that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So he says, hey, if you're going to walk by your own light, it's going to end in torment. If you walk by my light, it's going to go well with you. And then we have the very famous servant song of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, and the end of 52, and in all of 53, he says that his servant will purify many nations. Look at uh, 52, verse 14. And many, that is referring to lots of people, <laughs> okay? And we will see in 15 that it's also referring to the nations. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred and beyond human uh, semblance that his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. And that sprinkling is referring to um, the purification of, of many nations. The people will be cleansed by the suffering servant. It goes on, of course, and talks about how he is the Lamb of God. And this is what John the Baptist said of Jesus when he showed up on the scene. He pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I'm sure he was thinking of this passage in Isaiah when he was pointing and talking to Jesus. It says in verse 7 of chapter 53, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And so he goes and he suffers and, and he dies. And he does it as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in verses 11 through 12, we see that he makes the unrighteous righteous. Look at what it says here. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see 
and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many, see that? He's going to make many to be accounted righteous. So he's going to make it possible for many people from many nations to become righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's just an amazing picture of hope that we just don't have time to talk about further. But there we see it. And then in, verse, in chapters 56 through 66, we see preparing for the coming glory, and we see a reference to a conqueror, an anointed conqueror, that is going to come. And we have a call to ethical living in chapter 56, verses 1 through 2. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And so there's this call to ethical living and and it's obviously wisdom to listen to the word of the Lord and to live in a manner that um, brings him glory and others' blessing. And so he calls us to do this. But really, what it comes from is a genuine relationship with God. And that's something that he addresses uh, several times, as I mentioned, throughout the book, is that God isn't interested in you just going through the motions and, and having outward examples of righteousness. He's interested in your heart. He's interested in having a relationship with you, and he's interested in you loving him genuinely, okay? And so he has loved you, and therefore out of that realization of the amazing love that God has for you, a normal, rational response is to love God back, right? And to be like, I love you, and I love you because you love me more deeply and more completely than I can possibly imagine. And I am going to now listen to you and strive to follow you out of a love and adoration for you, not out of obligation. And furthermore, we have in the new covenant in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit who aids us in this endeavor and empowers us to live by faith so that we may actually follow in righteousness. It's an amazing truth that we have. So there's this call to ethical living. And then we see Yahweh is always ready to comfort the contrite. Look at uh, chapter 57. Verse 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also within, within sorry, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And so when you come to God with real contrition, you actually feel sorry for the sins that you've committed and you repent before God, He is always ready and willing to welcome you in. Always. This is the amazing message of the gospel is that God doesn't say, clean yourself up and come to me. No, He says, come to me and I will clean you up. Just be sorry, right? Apologize for your rebellion and your sin and surrender to my lordship and I will forgive you. This is an incredible message. It says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And it's speaking about those who are truly sorry for their sin. And the one before that is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's a progression there. The poor in spirit are the ones that realize, I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to offer God. There is nothing in me that is worthy of saving. And so you come to that realization, 
And that is the first step. And then you are really sorry for the fact that you have done the bad things that you've done. And you're going to continue doing bad things. And by God's grace, you'll be forgiven, right? But you are sorry for this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So this is the same thing that Isaiah is saying here. We also know in God's Word that He is faithful and just to forgive those, right? That's His promise, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What an incredible truth. In chapter 58, we see that Yahweh wants relationship and not mere religious ritual like I've been talking about. He says in verses 6 through 7, Is not this the fast that I choose? To And by the way, he's been talking about fasting and he's like, there's no point in fasting if you don't actually care about people. <laughs> That's kind of his message here. And so he says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, it is not to is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the home, homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. He's like, it's not about whether or not you're going through the motions and and you read your Bible, you know, so much every day, and you you pray so much, and you tithe so much, and and you make sure to go to church and everything. It's like, it's not about that. Although those are wonderful things to do, but they're pointless if you don't love God, right? That's, the, that's what he's saying. It means nothing if you don't love God. And a direct reflection of whether or not you actually love God is whether or not you're loving other people, okay? Because you can't love other people if you don't love God. Did you know that? There's a reason why the number one commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. Because you can't do the second that is like it if you don't do that first. Because our ability to love one another comes from God. So if you don't have a good relationship with God and you don't love God more than you love anybody else, well, then you won't have the ability to love other people. Okay? That's why Jesus said the very confusing thing that he said where he said, if you don't hate your mother and father you know, and follow me, then you're not worthy of me. And people are like, oh, what? You know, and what he's saying is in, in comparison, right? Obviously, God doesn't tell us to hate anyone. And he, it's an actual commandment to love your mother and father and to honor them, right? But what he's saying is you need to love me above all else and then love other people, right? And that's how we go about doing that. So this is what he tells us here. He actually wants a relationship, not just religious ritual, uh, need to get moving. All right, and then uh, we see here in chapter 59 that Yahweh uh, promises to come in power and victory and defeat sin. Uh, let's see here, verse 19 through 20 in chapter 59. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun, for He will come like a rushing stream with the wind of the Lord, with the wind that the Lord drives, and a redeemer, redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgressions, declares the Lord. Okay, so there's this promise of coming judgment. He will judge sin, and he will bring about a new heavens and a new earth. We see that in chapters uh, 63 through 65. And so, to recap a little bit, I want to point out that the gospel is implicit and points directly to Jesus in uh, the book of Isaiah. You've got the promise of the Davidic king who will reign in righteousness and justice forever. You've got the promise of the suffering servant who will atone for the sins of God's people. And you've got the promise of the coming conqueror who will bring an end to this age and establish his everlasting kingdom. And so you see this Throughout the book of Isaiah, this amazing hope of the gospel that is all pointing 
directly to Jesus. What I want to do in the remainder of our time is I want to ask three questions, okay? And I think these are three really good questions that we should all ask ourselves all the time. By the way, a good way to learn is to ask yourself questions, right? And when you read God's Word, you should ask yourself questions, um, and you should ask questions as you're reading it in terms of what is this saying to me? Oh, what is God's perspective here? These are good things to do. And so in that, these are the three questions that I am going to ask you and myself at the same time. In whom will you trust? That is the first question that I'm posing. In whom will you trust? Like Isaiah, we live in a fallen world with worries and difficulties, all right? We have all kinds of craziness going on in our world, in our own personal lives, in our nation, in the global community. We have all kinds of distressing things that go on all the time. And so, you know, in your personal struggles, we face things like finances, you know, our, our worry about whether or not we're going to have enough money, okay? This is a, a common thing in many of our lives. It kind of comes and goes, you know, for some of us, just constant reality, right? But these are things that we worry about. We worry about health, you know? I mean, things happen and you get sick and you never want to hear the C word from any doctor that you go visit, you know? And, and there's all these things that happen in life and it causes great distress and worry. You know, these are real things that we have to face and deal with in life and real tragedies, real hardship. So we have health concerns. We have relational conflict and trauma in our lives. And I'm sure there's not a person in this room that doesn't have that. There's somebody in your life, I'm sure, that you're like, that relationship is a mess. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not, not the way it should be. I don't know what to do about it, Lord, right? I am powerless to fix this, okay? And so you've got all these things just in our personal lives. These are just within our, like, circle of influence in our life that we deal with is the struggles of finances and the, the struggles of health and the struggle of relationships, we also have national concerns like the economy, which is super awesome right now, <laughs> right? Everybody loves it. Who doesn't love going to the gas station these days, right? Super fun. Or the grocery store. Oh my gosh, right? Just great times, great times, right? So we've got the economy. We've got government, right? I don't know about you, but it causes me a great deal of distress from time to time, right? So we've got government that we are dealing with. We've got all these polarizing worldviews that we have in our culture where people like can't even have a conversation, right? It's just within our nation, just people totally at odds with each other and there's no common ground. It's just, it's not good, right? And, and you really can look at it and be like, what is one to do? Like, I don't even know how to have a conversation with that person, right? We can't even talk about anything, it seems like, right? And so we have these worries and concerns and, and we ask ourselves, well, what do we do about this, right? Who are you going to trust? Okay, that's the question. And we've got global fears as well. You've got poverty and hunger that, you know, really has massive realities in other places in the world. We live in a very affluent culture. And I know that, you know, I was just talking about our economy and how bad it is. You know, Christian friend, I hope you realize how blessed we are. <laughs> Like, you know, we are so blessed in this country. And I'm not saying that our troubles aren't real, but um, there's a lot of people in the world that uh, live in a way that would blow your mind, you know, and, and blow my mind. Uh, and that's, that's a truth. You know that uh, if you make over, I think it's $35,000 a year, you are in the top 1% in the world. Top 1% in the world, which... I don't know what all of you guys make, but it's probably above that. And uh, that's something to think about, you know, top 1% of the world. So, lot, you know, global concerns. We've got hunger and, and poverty, real issues in the world, war, <laughs> you know, and there's people in power that we're like, ah, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not good, doesn't look good, you know. Um, what's going to happen? Things that we really do worry about. And these are concerns we have. Who are you going to trust? Okay? That is a great question to ask yourself. Who are you going to trust? In all of these concerns that we have, both personally, nationally, and glo globally, who are you going to trust? You're going to trust in man, man's ability to fix it. You're going to trust in who's going to take over the Oval Office to make everything okay again, you know? 
And we got to ask ourselves these things. Who are we going to trust in? Are we going to trust in the one who's actually in charge of it all? Who really is sovereign and reigning over all humanity and over all human history? And this is the question that was being posed to Israel. Are you going to trust in your political alliances? Or are you going to trust in me to protect you? Are you going to listen to me? Are you going to follow me? And personally, that's what we all have to do. We have to answer that question. We have to make a decision. Am I going to trust Jesus? And I'm, am I going to listen to him? Am I going to follow him and not worry about the things that are outside my control, but leave it in his hands and do the next right thing that is in front of me to do? So that's my first question to you guys is, um, who are you going to trust? Because if you trust in the Lord, you will not be put to shame. Romans chapter 10, verse 11. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. You're never, ever going to regret trusting Jesus. Ever. Here's the second question I want to pose to you guys tonight. Whose light do you want to live by? Whose light do you want to live by? As we saw, the, this theme of the light to the nations is all through the book of Isaiah. And those who look to the world for truth wander in darkness, okay? And we see that in our world today. And you maybe experience it in your own life and in seasons of darkness in which you weren't following Jesus and you were wandering in darkness and you were aimless and could not find your way. We are not supposed to be trusting in our own understanding. See, our understanding is so finite and so limited. We have like this little sliver of comprehension of reality, right? Just this little, little bit that we get to see. And how arrogant and ridiculous of us to think, oh, I get it. <laughs> I, know, I know what's going on. I understand this, right? Like that doesn't make any logical sense. Trust the one who sees the whole picture. And so when it doesn't make sense to you, don't lean on your own understanding. Trust the fact that God understands, that He knows what's going on, and when he says, trust me, that's exactly what you need to do, is you need to trust him. So whose light are you going to live by? See, truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have to remember that. There is no other alternative. There's no other means to truth. All truth comes from God, and there's only one way to be with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so if you try to live under any other light, you will be in darkness. There's only one way, and his name is Jesus. And that is the message to both Israel and to the nations. This is where your hope is. Your hope is in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. So listen to the words of Jesus. And be enlightened. This is what happens. You know, we kind of have a negative view of the term enlightened because we think of the enlightenment and we're like, oh, I don't want to do that, right? That's bad. But you know, you do want enlightenment. You just want it from Jesus, <laughs> okay? You want to be enlightened. You want to have understanding. You want to know the truth, right? We want this and it's a good thing. And Jesus says, come to me and I will enlighten you. So don't go to the world. Go to Jesus for enlightenment because those who reject the light of the world, um, they will be judged. It says in John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So if you reject the hope that we have in Jesus, there is consequences to that. But those who listen to Jesus are brought into the light. I am the light of the world, Jesus said in John chapter 8. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the source of both light and life. He is the truth, and he is the life everlasting, and so trust in him. And here's the third question that I'm posing to you this evening. What ethics will your life be defined by? What ethics 
will your life be defined by? The morality of the world has no foundation. No foundation whatsoever. And that's why it makes no logical sense most of the time. I don't know if you've noticed that, but when you talk to people or listen to people who speak about morality, but they have no relationship to God and and don't know Jesus Christ, well, then their ethics have no firm foundation. And therefore, they don't know where the line is supposed to be drawn. You see, all human beings understand that there's right and wrong. Everybody knows that. Um, And all civilizations have always had, you know, some sort of laws that are given out in terms of this is how you behave and you're not supposed to do this and it's probably good to do that, right? And so there's this understanding within humanity, this is uh, one of the proofs of the existence of God actually is morality, the fact that human beings instinctively know that there's a difference between right and wrong. Uh, This is C.S. Lewis's favorite uh, argument for the existence of God is the fact that all humanity has morality. So the world knows that there's right and wrong. They just don't know where the line is, right? And so that's the problem. If you have no foundation, you have no guidance, you have no direction for your ethics, well, then you just draw the line where you think it should go. And you're like, well, here it is. There's the line, you know? I, I, just, I just don't cross that. And then what happens? You cross and you just move the line, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, probably shouldn't be there. We'll just move that line a little bit and it'll be fine, right? Well, this is what the world does. Um, and that is because they have taken what is good and they have twisted it and they've made it bad. And so they have no guidance for their ethics and so they draw the line in the wrong place and now they have completely messed up the line between the holy and the profane, you know? And therefore they've taken things that are good and they've actually made them bad because they have no guidance for their ethics. Perfectly good and wonderful things that they've twisted and distorted to the point that now they're, they're no good at all. It's actually evil. So we need to follow in the wisdom and the power of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, Paul says, For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of Foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So, Christian friend, you need to understand that God loves you more deeply and more completely than you can possibly imagine. This is the wisdom and power of the gospel. That he loves you more deeply and more completely than you can possibly imagine. And therefore, we should love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. And from that relationship with God, we will then have true guidance for our morality and our ethics from Him, the one who authored it. And then we can love our neighbor as ourself. If we come to God and look at Him for the wisdom and the power. This is all through Jesus Christ. This this amazing thing that happens when we come to Jesus through faith and, and we love Him with all that we are and He transforms us from the inside out through the Holy Spirit. Well, this transformational process and this empowerment through the Holy Spirit to live in a manner worthy of the calling that God has called us to, it reveals God's love and His truth to the world around us. And this is how we are supposed to let everyone know that we're a Christian. It's by our transformed lives that we would live in such a way that our ethics and our love would be such that the world around us would see it and take notice. We shouldn't need a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or anything else to declare that we belong to Jesus. It should be the character that we exhibit through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your excitement about the truth 
in the hope that we have in Jesus. And as we go through Isaiah over these next many months, Lord, I pray that, that we would eagerly just consume just the amazing message of the gospel that is in this ancient text that we get to enjoy and to read and, and how amazing it is that these prophecies came 700 years before Jesus was born. And may that truth empower us. May we be strengthened by it. And I pray that our love would be deepened for you and that our capacity to love one another would be strengthened through the Holy Spirit, Lord, and that we would live by faith and not by sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.